Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. Hello and uh, welcome to the Sydney Writers' Festival. I would like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, who are the traditional custodians of this land, and pay my respects to the Elders past and present and to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are here today. My name is Matt Bevan and I'm a journalist at the ABC and the host and writer of the podcast If You're Listening, which looks at world events with a particular focus on events involving Russian President Vladimir Putin. Nine years ago, Vladimir Putin began an invasion of neighbouring Ukraine with the justification that Russian-speaking people in the country were being discriminated against by the government in Kyiv. In February last year, he doubled down with the largest act of military aggression in Europe since the Second World War, sending more than 100,000 troops to try and eliminate the Ukrainian government and take control of the capital. His justification was that Ukraine does not exist. Ukrainian people do not exist. They are all really Russians, but they have been put under the control of a tyrannical government and wish to be liberated. He thought the invasion would take less than a week. The Ukrainian people have shown that he was spectacularly wrong about almost everything. One of those Russian-speaking Ukrainians is Andrei Kirkov, one of the most highly regarded Russian-language novelists alive today. He was forced to flee Kyiv as Russian rockets began to rain down on the city. He was forced to live in the houses of friends in Western Ukraine as one of millions of displaced Ukrainians. From there, he began to write, not fiction, as he has made his name doing, but reports about life in Ukraine at war, which were compiled into the book, Diary of an Invasion. Can I please uh, get you to join me in welcoming Andrei Kirkov to the Sydney Writers' Festival. Uh, Andrei, thank you so much for uh, joining us from the United States today. Uh, Vladimir Putin was wrong and misinformed about many things, but I think the most significant were the competence of his military and the strength of Ukrainian identity, and this is something that you have looked into a lot. Can you talk about how that identity of Ukrainians developed and what makes Ukrainians different from Russians? Uh, hello, I, d- I don't know what time is it <laughs> uh, where you are. It's just after two o'clock in the afternoon. So we're all, we've all just had okay, our lunch. Good, good, uh, we're good all afternoon. very satisfied and uh, very interested to hear what you have to say. Yeah, uh, well, it's a very broad and very interesting topic. And definitely uh, people in Russia, and namely Putin, actually never took interest uh, uh, because uh, he invented his own version of Ukrainian history and firmly believed in it. But in fact, uh, Ukraine uh, never had a royal family. So Ukrainians from 16th, 17th century, they were choosing their leaders. Uh, I mean, the independent territory of Ukraine had no fixed borders at that time, because all the borders were front lines. Ukrainian Cossacks were fighting against Polish uh, aristocrats and Polish army, against Russians, sometimes against uh, Crimean Tatars, sometimes together with Crimean Tatars against Poles, etc. So it's it's a very anarchic uh, and very lively society. (laughs) And uh, it is still. Mm. uh, But uh, what... uh, happened that because of this 
uh, lack of respect for the authority and believe that everyone takes part in choosing the leader, uh, Ukrainians were never collective people like Russians are and were. Ukrainians were always individualists. And, uh, uh, and uh, since 1654, uh, Hetman, which, uh, I mean, the title of Ukrainian head of the army and territory was Hetman. Hetman Bogdan Kmelinsky asked Russian Tsar to help in the war against Poland. And this was the beginning of Ukraine losing its independence. And it, it still it lasted probably for 150 years after that until the Cossack society was completely dissolved, the Cossacks army was banned, and the territory was taken over by Russian Tsars. But, but uh, still, I mean, Ukrainians were individualists even in the 20th century, and because of this, they were regularly punished by first Russian Tsars and then by the Soviet regime. Because, for example, in 1920s, Ukrainians didn't want to join collective farms. They are used to be independent farmers. Because of this, actually, uh, more than 150,000 farmers from Ukraine were deported to Siberia. The artificial famine, actually, from 1932-33, I think, was organized to crash this Ukrainian individualism. Mm. So at the same time, there was famine in Russia, in Volga region, but the army was sent to take all the food, all the produce from Ukrainian villages, and Ukrainians were left with no food, and according to the historians, between four and seven million Ukrainians died of hunger at that mm. time. So, I mean, I, I, yeah. I can carry on, but the main difference is that Ukrainians are individualists, yes. and unlike uh, Russians, they are not fatalists, because, mm -hmm. I mean, Russians don't believe they can change something in their country. Ukrainians are sure they can, mm. and that's why we had Orange Revolution, Euromaidan, and that's why, actually, we have now the war, because Ukrainians were not prepared just to became slaves again or to be incorporated in new Russian empire. Do you think that the difference between Ukrainians and Russians has increased since the end of the Soviet Union, that 30-year period of Ukrainian independence and uh, the Russian Federation? Do you think that the, the different identities of each culture have diverged further or has it remained as it was before? No, no, no. Everything was... Uh, uh, in, in development. Uh, in fact, actually, half of Ukraine, uh, because of the Soviet rule, lost its Ukrainian mentality. And I'm talking not about ethnic Ukrainians, I'm talking about citizens of Ukraine. Because, I mean, if you live in this society, you adopt the rules, you adopt the values and attitudes. Mm -hmm. and, and so, actually, Ukraine, uh, in the beginning of independence, was divided into two parts, central uh, and to the east, it was still like post-Soviet society with collective mentality, mostly Russian-speaking, and center to the West, it was more individualist, more sort of uh, Ukrainian mentality, uh, uh, and, and Ukrainian language was coming back. Ukrainian language was mostly actually preserved by the Western Ukrainian three provinces, which became part of uh, Soviet Ukraine only de facto and after 1945. 
they were annexed by the Soviet Union in 1939 from Poland, and Bukovina was annexed from Romania. And they, they kept, actually, the Ukrainian mentality and the sort of the spirit of real Ukraine. And from there, actually, every year, the border between collective mentality and individualist mentality was moving slowly towards Russia. Mm. And if we didn't have this war, this border would finally coincide with the border between Russia and Ukraine maybe in 20 years, 25 years. Mm. Well, uh, perhaps the war will escalate it in certain, in certain parts. I know a lot of, uh, a lot of people uh, who had sort of uh, a favourable opinion of Russia have had it changed uh, very rapidly by the invasion. Well, it's very easy to understand. Russia in, uh, invested uh, probably hundreds of millions of dollars and euros in the cultural image of Ukraine to compensate its negative political image. Mm. So this, uh, the knowledge about great Russian culture practically covered all over the globus. Everybody is still in love with Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, Tchaikovsky, Linka, etc., but now you have two Russias. You have sort of mythical cultural Russia, which uh, exists uh, on the bookshelves of Australian and American bookshops in the operas. And you have real today's Russia, which is killing civilians, which is actually bombing cities, which is trying uh, to steal a country with 40 million population and of the size of France. Mm. Uh, I was struck in your book by a passage you wrote about uh, the idea of good Russians. Uh, there are a number of uh, well-known uh, Russian people who you cite who have spoken out against uh, spoken out against Vladimir Putin in one way or another. Um, and yet, there is still a lot of scepticism about their intentions among Ukrainians. Ukrainians don't necessarily forgive them their Russianness uh, just because they are uh, criticizing Vladimir Putin. Is that the point you come, you're trying to get across well, in this? Well, yes, because, I mean, to be against Putin, it doesn't actually mean to be for democracy or for uh, European values or even for, for Ukrainian independence. Because, I mean, the, the, the idea that was conveyed to Russians in the last 30 years that they are the most spiritual nation, that everybody else is wrong, that they are surrounded by the enemies, that the West is trying to, uh, well, just to, 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 to create some kind of terrible version of Russia, uh, imposing its values, its freedom of speech, its freedom of press, and Russia doesn't need it. And actually, I mean, I... I I, I, I don't want to say that there are no good Russians. I, I know several good Russians. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, Vladimir Sorokin is a friend of mine who lives in Berlin, and he is one of the best Russians, <laughs> and who is actually supporting Ukraine, and uh, not only against Putin, but of course he is worried about the future of Russia as anybody uh, who is really thinking about the future. Mikhail Shishkin, a writer who left Russia in the 1990s and lives in uh, Lucerne in Switzerland. But I mean, most of the good Russians are abroad now. Mm. At the same time, I want to mention that there are groups of good Russians 
who are helped by Western world to emigrate from Russia, and at the same time they are afraid to make statements criticizing the aggression in Ukraine because they say, well, we are afraid we have relatives in Russia, maybe they will be harassed, maybe they will be in problems, maybe we will not be able to return. Mm. And this fear, I mean, it's incredible because, I mean, I think the Soviet dissidents didn't have this fear. They were ready to go to Gulag, to, to prisons, to Siberia. I mean, uh, academician Sakharov was ready, actually, to be exiled in the city of Gorky for, for his views, but he expressed his views openly. Now, I mean, there is almost no courage like this existing mm-hmm. in Russia. Mm-hmm. I was struck by a passage you wrote about uh, how, as a child, you would play war, gra- war games with your, with your childhood friends. And uh, in the war games, the Germans were always the villains. You were always... Uh, you always, everybody wanted to be the Soviet army and nobody wanted to be the Germans and people would have to be forced to be the Germans because no one wanted anything to do with German society. You, you talk about how you uh, turned down the option yourself of learning German and learned English instead. And you're, you write about your concern that it will now be the Russian culture that will be seen that way. Do you think that that is, what, well, that is what's going to happen? Case. Yeah. It's already the case, yeah. I mean, the, almost nobody wants to uh, learn Russian. Russian-speaking parents don't want their children to learn Russian. Very often they, they just uh, try to speak Ukrainian to children so that the kids would get used to the language if they live in Russian-speaking areas. But generally, almost officially, Russian is the language of the enemy. Of course, at the same time, it's language which is considered by as a mother tongue by 30 to 40 percent of Ukrainians, but lots of Russian-speaking Ukrainians are ashamed to be Russian speakers. Mm. I mean, those who are uh, educated, I mean, people who just live uh, in Russian-speaking areas and cities and towns, and they, they, they don't think about this issue. But of course, I mean, I, I should mention that the first victims among civilian population uh, of this invasion were the Russian speakers of Sumy, Chernigiv, Mariupol, uh, Kharkiv, uh, Dnipro, and uh, the suburbs of Kiev. Mm. Because, I mean, Buchia, Irpin, Gostomel, Vorzel, they are also probably 50% Russian-speaking settlements. Mm. I'm interested in the, the parts of your book that, where you write about your, uh, the process of getting out of Kiev and, and getting your family out of Kiev and, and out of the country, in, in the case of some of your family members. And uh, the hospitality of Ukrainians towards displaced people like yourself. What has it been like to have, to be one of millions of sleep-deprived people living in other people's houses all over the country? And how, uh, what has that taught you about the generosity of Ukrainians? Well, uh, I, I was actually shocked. I didn't expect it, frankly speaking. But from the very beginning, actually, I, we experienced this uh, desire to help uh, the others uh, uh, probably several times uh, every day. I mean, we left uh, Kiev with my wife and uh, our friend and her son on the second day of the invasion, uh, thinking that actually the roads will be clear, but uh, there were traffic jams 40, 50, 70 kilometers long, and uh, 
uh, our children at that time were in Lviv in western Ukraine for a long uh, weekend. So we, we were trying to reach them. We couldn't get there uh, before the evening, so we had to stay. Uh, and I, I had a sleep uh, after 22 hours at the wheel, mm. two hours of nap. And then in the morning we got there. And then we decided to go to the border with Hungary and Slovakia, across mountains, across Carpathian mountains. And in the mountains after midnight, we got stuck in another traffic jam. And it was uh, end of February, minus 10 or minus 15 outside, very little uh, gas uh, in tank of the car. So, I mean, if you want to heat the car, you use the petrol, but then you will not be able to find petrol to drive on. So, I mean, I, I, mm. I noticed actually when we were already so we were standing for one hour in, in the traffic jam, I noticed a small hotel by the road and I rushed there, asked if they have a room because we, ha- we were actually eight people in the car. Our children, three children, their friends, and me and my wife. And how, 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 big was your, the, how big was your car to have eight people in well, it? Well, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good seven-seater. It's a oh, minivan, okay. Mr. Gratis. So we, we were comfortable. We okay. were not in a small larder. <laughs> you, you, nobody was packed into the trunk of the larder. Yeah, fair enough. No, 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 no. Sorry, but, go but on. What, what happened that, that yes, that... The, this, uh, the hotel was full, but the man there at the reception gave me the telephone number of somebody who lived in a village 20 kilometers away, a young man who bought a, an abandoned Soviet touristic hostel somewhere not far away. And I called this man in the night, and he came, he took us to his uh, hostel, he brought blankets, etc., everything we needed, he switched on the heating, but then he went back Uh, to the traffic jam and returned with about 20 cars with families with children and offered them to stay in this hostel. Uh, And this was the first sort of major act of charity that we experienced. Mm -hmm. And then we managed next day to get to Užgorod. It's a very nice town on the border with Slovakia. And we stayed with my friends. And then a lady who I never met gave us the uh, key from her flat and she went to live with her daughter and daughter's family. She was retired. She was actually a, a Russian-speaking lady because she had in this small flat the same books my parents had mm-hmm. on the bookshelves, including mm-hmm. Pushkin, Dostoevsky, Franco, and everything else, and even the Soviet cookbook, <laughs> which I love very much. <laughs> yeah. so, and we stayed, and we were not uh, uh, pressed to leave, so we stayed there until June, four months. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Uh, one of my favourite parts of the uh, of the story is is when you were in the hotel and you told the owner of the hotel, uh, the the hostel, that you, there were no towels. Can you tell us what he did about the lack of towels? Oh no, he, uh, well, uh, actually, he got the brand new towels. There was another story which uh, my my daughter doesn't like me to mention usually. <laughs> Uh, we, won't, we won't tell anyone, but, but will we? No. Yes, please don't tell. <laughs> no. But, uh, yes, if you can imagine, it's probably 2 o'clock in the morning. And uh, uh, we occupied three rooms, eight people, and there was only one roll of pa- toilet paper. And, and, and my daughter said, well, it's, uh, there is only one roll, 
and, and, and the, the, the owner heard it and he said, don't worry, I will call now. I know one uh, shop owner in the other village. I will wake her up, she will open, I will bring you toilet paper. I, I stopped him, I said, we can un unroll this, we can make three or five or ten rolls out of one. No problem at all. <laughs> Um, yes, and, and you mentioned the, the towels. I'd, I'd love. To, he brought the towels in. They still had all of the price tags attached to the towels. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, I know that um, the idea of displacement has been really a running theme throughout your novels, even before this. You wrote, uh, you know, uh, death in a uh, death in the penguin and grey bees are both about displaced animals, animals that have been taken out of their their environment. Uh, what, what is uh, the idea of uh, the way that people, what, what is the, uh, the observations you've made about the way that people uh, act when they are displaced? Does it mirror the way that you, you, you write about animals being displaced? Well, it's, uh, every book is a separate case. In fact, actually, uh, Death and the Penguin is a story about solitude and about displacement, but historical displacement, because mm. The main character uh, remains where he lived, uh, but the country gone. Yeah. Uh, and this is a very specific, this is psychological displacement. You have to understand the new rules. So you see the same walls, the same doors, the same shops, but sometimes the, suddenly the bookshop starts selling vodka because nobody wants to buy books in the crisis time. But, 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 I mean, but people are looking for stability. I mean, for, for uh, animals, I mean, stability is just natural environment. So, I mean, my character, Victor, from The Death and the Penguin, actually, he is dumped by his girlfriend. Uh, he doesn't feel uh, stable. The country is gone. He has no money. And he finds out that the Kiev Zoo gives uh, small anim animals away to anybody who can feed them. And he goes and brings home uh, a penguin, the last remaining penguin, without knowing that he's depressed and has a heart problem. So, I mean, of, of course, I mean, he, he's depressed because he is not in Antarctic or in Chile, because he is displaced. I mean, every animal which finds itself in the zoo is displaced. Mm. And in this sense, as he, he, this animal is as displaced as a Soviet person mm. who suddenly realized that the country is gone, together mm. with the social structure, with all the guarantees, with all the sort of real or imaginary elements of stability in mm. life. Have you been able to find, and you and other displaced people that you, you speak to, have you been able to find some stability in your new environment? Uh, no. I, I, you cannot call it stability. Mm. You, uh, uh, I mean, uh, it's, it's a very uh, good question because... Uh, uh, I travel a lot uh, in the last 25 years, and usually I travel six months every year. Hmm. I mean, uh, now I am on the road already for 15 months. And, for example, at the moment I'm for six months at Stanford teaching. So I, I'm, I'm displaced in Stanford. It sounds great. I mean, yeah. probably everybody wants to be displaced in, in Stanford. <laughs> but... but, but uh, I don't feel comfortable, yeah. and I don't feel stable, and, and, and actually, I mean, uh, I'm a foreigner, uh, I'm a short-term uh, scholar, uh, which uh, 
means that I have to follow different rules. And, and I, I mean, in this rules only for a short period of time. And what, what, what I dream of, I, I, I'm dreaming of coming back home. Although, I mean, I know my children are in Kiev. I know about bombing every day and the explosions over the house. Hmm. Uh, we live in the very center. And I mean, it would be much easier for me to be there than hmm. here. Yes, I think uh, for a lot of people, a, a lot of people here, I'm sure, have spent a long time away from home, uh, but know that home is still there. You can go back to where, to your home and experience it the way you expect it to be, whereas that's not something that, that you can do. You, if you go back to Kiev, you are going back to air raid sirens and, and the threat of, the threat of uh, missiles hitting you in the night. Well, this is the nightlife. Mm. In the day, uh, actually, Kiev lives normal life. The cafe, cafe, coffee shops are open, restaurants open, museums work. You can go to theaters. I mean, theater performances can be interrupted by uh, air raid alarm. And if we, uh, it is not uh, uh, sort of, uh, what do you call it, uh, uh, stopped uh, uh, within one hour, then the performance will be shown again. <laughs> if, if, uh, if there's a short alarm for half an hour, then you, you, you go downstairs to the bunker and then yeah. you go upstairs to the hall and, and, and you continue watching the performance. Mm. Extraordinary. Um, what is it like, though, uh, having uh, a, a population who, I mean, I think most, for most of us, the, the closest experience that we have to what these people are living through with the air raid sirens is uh, having young children and waking up five, six, seven times a night uh, by sirens. What is it like to have an entire city uh, being so sleep deprived? Is it is it something that people can sort of bond over, the fact that all of them haven't got enough sleep? Well, I think, uh, I mean, the, the result will be, uh, of course, negative for the psyche, for the society, because uh, it's not fun uh, to, to, to live no. in the wartime and to be deprived of the sleep. And, uh, and of course, I mean, people in Kiev are more or less uh, sure that... Uh, they are well protected, which is true. But, I mean, the other big cities are less protected. And last night, a big city, Dnipro, was shelled. And uh, a psychiatric clinic was uh, hit by the missile and destroyed. And veter veterinary clinic was destroyed. And two people at least killed, more than 30 wounded. And, uh, and, and still, uh, the situation in Dnipro is better than in the towns more close to the front line, mm. like Kupiansk, Nikopol, which are less protected and have real hits and uh, dozens of people killed every week. Mm. So, so, I mean, uh, psychologically, I think uh, the situation will be unstable and Ukraine will need lots of therapists, mm. psychotherapists, actually, afterwards. Mm. Um, I'd like to talk a bit about Lviv, which uh, is a city that is very, the large city that is furthest away from the front, I think. Uh, it's a city that you have written about and uh, there's a newly released 
English language version of one of Andre's books, uh, which was actually published some time ago, but newly in the English language, and it's been nominated for a Booker Prize uh, called Jimi Hendrix Live from Lviv, which is really a, a celebration of the unusual culture of Lviv. Can you can you tell us a bit about about the city and 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 why you wanted to write this book about it? Well, uh, Lviv uh, is a wonderful city. It looks like Vienna. If you were in Austria. Uh, it was part of Austrian-Hungarian Empire at some time. It was part of Poland. It is a city with five names in different languages. In Russian, Lvov, in Polish, Lvov, in Ukrainian, Lviv, in Italian, Leopoli, and in German, Lemberg. And in the Soviet time in 1970s, it was one of three major centers of hippie movement. And, uh, uh, and of course, I mean, uh, when uh, Soviet filmmakers wanted to make a film about the West, very often they would make these films in Lviv, but <laughs> also in Riga, in Baltic states, but Lviv was favorite because the uh, Austrian-style cafes are still there to find even more now. Mm. Wonderful architecture. Uh, the central part of the city for Middle Ages and uh, still you can find uh, the r last remaining hippies who are still hippies there. They are now in their 70s. And actually in the book there are six main characters, but three of them are real uh, people from Lviv under their real name with their real addresses. And one of them is the founder of hippie movement in Ukraine, Ali Kolisevich, and now he's the holder of the hippie archive. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it is an adventure book. But uh, I used for this book a lot of myths and legends that uh, were created by the hippies themselves. Actually, I edited, I invented some other legends, and, and now the hippies are saying that this was true what I made up. What is the what is the legend that is that relates uh, Jimi Hendrix to Lviv? Well, when he, uh, I mean, when he died, the legend is. And, and, and this is actually my legend, which is now appropriated. <laughs> that, that, the, that some KGB people were also in love with uh, Jimi Hendrix. And, and uh, when he died, actually, they helped uh, uh, hippies from Lviv uh, to get his uh, right wrist and to have, for, for, the, for Jimi Hendrix to have his own grave in the Lichakov Cemetery of Lviv. By taking his by taking and, his and right every hand. Every night of his. <laughs> well, he was actually left-handed. Yes. In fact. <laughs> um, has that? What has the effect of huge numbers of displaced people coming into that city been on the culture of the city, on the unique culture of the city? Well, uh, of course, uh, Western Ukraine was usually and before uh, more Ukrainian speaking. And mm. now with a huge influx of the refugees, displaced people from the East, uh, there are lots of people who speak Russian. And it's very interesting because many of them are studying Ukrainian, trying to speak Ukrainian. And the locals understand that these people want to stay. They will not go back to Donbass. Donbass is destroyed. Yeah, there are people who don't want to learn Ukrainian, and they are treated like temporary refugees. Mm. But, but uh, generally, uh, at some point, Lviv became cultural capital 
of Ukraine because all the artists, poets and writers and intellectuals from all around Ukraine moved to Lviv and they stayed there for first three or four years of uh, months of new invasion. And there were lots of cultural events. I mean, it's still, it's still very cultural city, but it was overcrowded, of course. Yeah. Well, uh, it's an incredibly cultural city. It's got uh, part of it's got a grave for H- Jimi Hendrix there. We've all heard about it, uh, famous, fa- no, famously. Not ever seen it. <laughs> uh, um, uh, look, uh, let's let's talk a little bit about um, the Ukrainian president Volodymyr Zelensky. He's a man who, in Western media, is seen almost like a superhero. He is uh, a man who is uh, admired. He was. Time magazine's uh, person of the year. He uh, is hugely admired in the West. What is the attitude that Ukrainians have towards this man who, as far as all of we can tell from our media, is doing an incredible job leading leading the country? Well, uh, he is doing an incredible job. Uh, I think the war made him a politician. Yeah. Because when he was elected, he was just an ordinary Ukrainian populist uh, with a, a comedian's background. I didn't vote for him, and actually I, I was quite critical about him until the very beginning of the new invasion. But he, he learned now the very dramatic role, and I think he understands now that dramatic roles pay better than comic roles. Mm. Uh, uh, I mean, it, 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 I, I am still puzzled by his decision to to go for president. <laughs> I have sort of some my, my ideas why. I, I don't think, maybe this connected with the role he played in the TV series, uh, but see, I, it's, it's not a good reason yeah. to take part in the elections. Yeah. But uh, anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll see how he goes further. I mean, he, he, as I said, he's doing a good job. He is not supported by majority of intellectuals because he is the representative of show business, of not intellectual sort of life. And he brought to power lots of people from show business. So they are now in the parliament, in the cabinet of ministers. Our minister of culture, Alexander Kachenka, is TV producer uh, and the ex-director of the TV channel. The head of the administration of... Uh, uh, Zelensky's office, uh, Yermak, is TV producer. So, so I mean, but may, maybe it's a good thing. Maybe, maybe they can produce victory for Ukraine. Mm. <laughs> um, it's it, it, one of the uh, roles that he seems most adept at is uh, getting support from Western countries for Ukraine uh, and and sort of acting as a uh, a marketer, I suppose, for Ukraine's needs. Uh, what have you observed about the different attitudes that different Western nations have? I know you, you've, you, you see a difference, particularly in the way that the US and UK see Ukraine and the way that the European Union sees Ukraine. Can you talk about those differences? Oof, uh, actually, I, I think actually, uh, for, first... Uh, uh, Zelensky was admired by a uh, French president even before the election. But this is a secret information. I sh- shouldn't have told you. <laughs> I-, I heard it from the French diplomats. All right. <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> yeah. 
But, but, but anyway, uh, it's true that without this help, actually, Ukraine wouldn't be able to defend its territories or to liberate Kharkiv region or Kherson. Uh, uh, but of course, uh, there is a big difference. Uh, the war uh, is fought on three different levels. So, I mean, this is the war of Russia, of Putin, to grab the whole uh, territory of Ukraine and to make it again uh, part of Russian Federation. This is the war against Ukrainian identity because this Ukrainian identity is stopping now uh, Russian army on the front lines. It's Russian mentality, it's respect for the Ukrainian culture, Ukrainian history, because uh, identity is what? Language, culture, and history. But on the top level, it is a geopolitical uh, war, and this was announced by Putin. This is the war against the West, collective West against America. So it's uh, the newly assembled union of North Korea, Venezuela, Belarus, Russia, and uh, North, uh, North Korea, I mentioned, yes, yeah. Iran, yes. Yes. Uh, against uh, which uh, uh, Putin says that they are representing traditional uh, values. Of course. And they are fighting against Western values. Uh. And... Uh, Somehow Putin thinks that the main West, Western value is uh, uh, like uh, complete uh, anarchy and uh, everything is allowed. Mm. And if you are, uh, I mean, uh, I don't know, he, he's crazy about gay culture and gays. I mean, you know, to be gay is like in the Soviet Union is a very dangerous thing in, in Russia. And... Uh, uh, Somehow in propaganda it was used many times, the message that if the Western countries come and have their influence, then everybody will be forced to become gay. Look, or lesbian. That, yeah, well, look, there are worse things that could happen. Um, uh, what, what about the way that Europe is supporting Ukraine? Uh, they sort of have been promising a lot of assistance, but often uh, need to be uh, coerced almost into providing the assistance that they promise. Why do you think there is some hesitation from Europe to provide Ukraine with everything that they need? Well, first, first of all, of course, I mean, Germany didn't want to give anything at all. Yep. And they, uh, they were saying, uh, Scholz was saying openly that we are not going to supply weapons because we don't want escalation, which means that actually he was uh, happy uh, for Ukraine to be taken over by Russia, but without escalation and without German weapon. But slowly uh, he started promising uh, ammunition and weapon, but not delivering them. Yeah. Then he started uh, almost delivering them, but saying that the ammunition is uh, produced under the license of Switzerland, and Switzerland doesn't allow uh, the licensed ammunition to be given uh, to other countries. So <laughs> actually, it's only Britain, Britain, Lithuania, Poland, and uh, uh, USA that they were helping very much uh, from the very beginning, and Australia. These, uh, the Bushmaster uh, personnel carriers, I think they, they I mean, we, we, we have enough space for them. We have even more space for them if you have some spare ones. Just checking, does anyone have a Bushmaster that they could send? Uh, <laughs> Andre knows who to talk to. Uh, 
Um, yeah, but, but so, so, so yes, uh, it's it's different now. But I think at some point uh, the leaders of Europe uh, were afraid that uh, Ukraine can win, and, and of, of course nobody wants to to have more problems inside Russia. Although yeah. I, I I cannot see how you can have more problems. <laughs> yes, they have their fill of problems. Um, uh, but do, do you think that uh, the Europeans are angling towards a situation where they want uh, Ukraine to basically push Russia back to the line that they were at February 23rd, 2022, and then say that's enough, not proceed into Crimea, not proceed into Donbass. At that point, they will cut off their military aid. Uh, do, do you see any possibility of Europe doing that? Uh, theoretically, yes. But uh, uh, this will be a huge motivation for Russia to make another push against Ukraine. Yeah. So, I mean, if uh, the West shows that uh, uh, West is tired and ready to surrender or ready to stop the aid, this will be the end of Ukraine. So, yeah. I mean... With, I mean, it's clear that, that, that there should be negotiations, there should be uh, guarantees of security from the Western side, etc. I don't know, uh, there, there should be somehow uh, uh, many political leaders of the world involved in the final deal, which uh, should fix the situation for, not for the nearest two months or three months, uh, but for the long future to come. But also I am quite uh, uh, pessimistic about possibility to talk to Putin. It should be a different leader, different people from the political elite. Because Putin will not give up. I mean, he, he is upset because his plans just didn't work. He is still calling this special operation. It is not a war. From time to time, his ministers are saying that, well, if Ukraine is misbehaving even more, then we will call it a war. That'll teach him. <laughs> that'll, yeah. that'll solve the problem. Um, you must have contact with uh, Russians who are in Russia. What do you know about what, how life has changed for Russians under the level of sanctions that have been brought against Russia in the last uh, year and a half? Well, I wouldn't say that, uh, I mean, I, I have contacts with a couple of people who are afraid to send the messages because they are sure that everything is uh, overheard, intercepted, right. etc. So, I mean, it's like, it's like paranoia. Yeah. Uh, uh, what, what I know is mostly actually from journalists who manage to travel, yes. And I, I think sanctions do work. But, of course, I mean, uh, Russians are creative people and they found their roots how to get things which are not uh, to be sent to them. And now I think Kazakhstan is used for this and probably Turkey and some other countries. Uh, of course, I mean, they, they cannot get everything they want. Uh, but I think it's still easier for them uh, to buy microchips uh, than Parmesan. 
Well, yes, you mentioned they're learning to live without things. You also write that they're, they're having to learn to live without airbags. Uh, new cars are being provided to Russians with, without safety features because they can't get the airbags they need. Uh, well, uh, 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 they don't discuss airbags anymore. <laughs> but, but, I mean, usually they were using icons instead of uh, airbags. <laughs> they just attached uh, the icons in the most dangerous corners of the car. Right. And then you are protected. I see. I see. Makes sense. Uh, what uh, what, what uh, can we expect over the next few months, do you think? Uh, you know, there's all this discussion of a, a spring offensive from Ukraine um, and a, a, a push to try and reclaim some more territory uh, while fighting conditions are favourable. Do, do you think that this is something that is likely to, to succeed or, or is there some exhaustion in Ukrainian forces that will make it more difficult to make these gains than it has been in the, few, in the past? Uh, I think that, no, there is still energy in the Ukrainian forces. Uh, but, of course, I mean, Russians are much better prepared now than in the spring last year. So uh, any counteroffensive will come at a very high cost. Mm. And, uh, well, I mean, probably we, 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 we should, only an element of surprise can actually sort of bring success, but you cannot have surprise on the whole uh, front line, which is 2,000 kilometers long. Yes. Um, you... Uh this, this book, uh, A Diary of an Invasion, only takes us up to July of last year. Uh, can we expect a second volume of, of diary entries in the next little while? Uh, yes, yes. I, I, I continue writing uh, essays and diary entries, and uh, probably there will be one more book. Uh, uh, maybe just like this one will be published next October or next September. Uh, are you working on fiction as well, or is fiction something I, for peacetime? I want to work. I, I, I would love to work on fiction. I have unfinished novel, but uh, I tried several times. I failed. I will try again. But it's difficult uh, to, to get distracted from the news because, I mean, uh, to write a fiction, you, you have to be able to forget about reality. Yeah and to work only with the imaginary story, imaginary world. And, uh, and my novel, which is interrupted by the war, is about 1919 in Kyiv. Mm. 100 years ago, the times of the civil war after 1917, October Revolution. Uh, and it, it requires concentration, of course. Yeah. And I cannot concentrate on the history when the reality is uh, so dramatic. You have clearly kept your sense of humour uh, through this that is, you know, that is so evident in your novels. You've, you've kept it. We've all experienced it through the last 45 minutes. Uh, what, what is the key to doing that? And, and is that common through other Ukrainians to, to have kept your sense of humour, your sense of uh, uh, ability to observe the ridiculousness of the situation around you? What's the key to maintaining that? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, uh, because my, my uh, love for the humor comes from the Soviet times when humor was a weapon, when the jokes were the main sort of political messages. Yeah, and uh, 
And actually, a couple of times I almost uh, lost this sense of humor. It came back uh, later, yes. But, but generally, I mean, in Ukraine, humor plays an important role. And uh, you should re- know that Gobel was Ukrainian, <laughs> and he brought humor into Russian literature. Yeah. Well, because, I mean, Russian literature is more political, and it had satire, but didn't have real juicy humor. <laughs> and, and I was actually uh, kept uh, op- an optimist uh, by soldiers' humor uh, in the beginning of the new invasion, who were making uh, video sketches from the front line and posting them on Facebook, uh, also with lots of black humor and ordinary humor. Yeah. Well, I guess that's what happens when your president is a comedian, or perhaps that's why your president is a comedian, because of the sense of humour that Ukrainians maintain. Uh, We've got a question here in the front row we might start with. Um, I have a question. I am confused about something. I have hope that the infighting in Russia between perhaps the Wagner group and how how the the head of the Wagner group can publicly criticise Putin and get away with it, but Putin needs him because the generals might be against Putin if he doesn't have that. I don't, could you just kind of nutshell it for me and explain that complex situation? That's a really good question. Some of you may have seen, uh, some of you may have seen the videos of Yevgeny Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner group, angrily shouting about uh, you know, whatever it is that's bothering him that day. Uh, How is it that he's able to do that in in the current political environment in in Russia? Well, I think he was and probably is still in critical situation because his army consists of uh, professional criminals, murderers, and nobody wants them back alive. Actually, they are going back uh, after six months according to the promise, and they are killing again. And and, and so actually for for the Russian leadership, I think uh, it's preferable if they all die uh, on Ukrainian soil. And, and, and this is why probably he was so emotional and shouting that they are not giving him shells and ammunition and not helping him enough. But, but generally, I think there are lots of uh, problems between uh, generals and between different groups around uh, Putin. And the fact that actually Prigozhin can shout and record this video, it means that actually that some people don't have fear of Putin anymore because they feel that he is half gone. He is sort of getting, just uh, going away slowly. Uh, uh, just in the middle aisle here. Uh, Andre, how do you think your writing will change with this most recent exhibit of Russian violence in Ukraine? Well, uh, the uh, novel I I was writing uh, before the new invasion, it was third novel in a series about 1919 uh, in Kiev. And uh, the time of the civil war in Ukraine was uh, very violent and uh, easy to compare with what was happening near Kiev uh, uh, last year. So, so uh, in a way, uh, by continuing the same novel, uh, probably I will be able to write uh, uh, w- what I wanted to write even before the in- invasion. I don't want to write about the battles and the, the actual war, I mean fiction. I, 
I don't mind writing non-fiction, but to write fiction about this war, one should take part in it, should go to the trenches, etc. Uh, but uh, if I change uh, theme, and I will be writing in the future something about the uh, Ukrainian uh, life and reality, definitely uh, I will be under the influence of what I experienced uh, during the last 15 months. There's no doubt about it. Mm. Can you talk a little to the utter tragedy of so many people who have died and who are amputees and this trauma that will be with them for the rest of their lives? Well, uh, I, I, probably I should, I should tell you a bit about how uh, the literary society survives in this time. Uh, we have more than 30 writers and poets died in the war, killed by shells, but some killed in battle. Two days ago, a young writer, uh, Igor Misuk, uh, was killed. He volunteered to go to the front line. Uh, we had a writer who wrote books for children executed in Kharkiv region and identified only his body was uh, several months later in November. He was killed in, in Mar March. So, in, in, in fact, the whole culture is paying the price because uh, nobody is writing what he or she wanted to write now. I mean, filmmakers are not making films. Composers are not composing music. I mean, the, the, there is, one can say, cultural silence except for nonfiction and poetry. But there are poets who are going to the front lines to read their poems to the soldiers and to the locals who didn't evacuate. And they are very much appreciated. And it's very interesting that actually, I think prose is not read now. The soldiers want to listen to the poetry mm. and they also want to read nonfiction about Ukrainian history because now they understood that they don't know enough about the country they are defending, about their country. And this is a very interesting phenomenon because real Ukrainian history was banned until 91. And after 1991, because of the crisis, because of the economical issues, people didn't think about Ukrainian history or identity. Yeah. And, and now this is the war, actually. Uh, the, the war is fought uh, to have your own history, to have your identity, to have your culture. Yeah. We've probably got time for one more question. Uh, yep. Uh, um, what is your degree of confidence in post-war Ukrainian civil society? Well, uh, you know, from, two, uh, from 2014, I can say that uh, civil society in Ukraine is much stronger than political elite. And politicians are afraid of civil society. Uh, between 2014 and 2022, uh, 400,000 Ukrainian men went through the fronts of Donbass, and they became another community, another huge community. There are writers there, there are publishers, there are social activists, and they strengthened even more so, uh, civil society. So uh, I, I think after this war, the society will even even stronger. And that uh, will mean that uh, society will not tolerate unprofessional politicians, corrupt politicians. And uh, I hope that 
that the civil society will also give rise to new political forces. Because, I mean, what we have now, it's uh, very often the political parties uh, without ideology, but uh, run or led by the charismatic politicians like Yulia Timoshenko, who is already partially in the past. And I mean, I, I cannot uh, define, for example, ideology of Zelensky's party, the servant of the people. I, 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 because, I mean, some of them, some of the members of parliament are conservative, some liberal, some apolitical. And, uh, and, and this is also a Ukrainian tradition because, uh, I mean, Ukraine was always a very well-organized anarchy from 16th century. And the result is that we have now more than 400 political parties registered in the Ministry of Justice. Well, a well-organized anarchy, that's a good way of uh, finishing up, I think. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking Andre Kirkov. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.